All right. Good morning, Illuminate. It's always so good to be with you. Special thanks to Detra for sharing your story. You know, there's been a lot of people up here on the stage uh, that have been getting standing ovations. I'm not one of them. Um, <laughs> for their work that God is doing in their lives. So thank you for sharing that. Really, really appreciate it. And, and toward the end of the service, it's a really special day, obviously, as well. Be well, actually, I should probably explain. Let me just explain. This, uh, my shirt is wet right here, not because I have a gross amount of elbow sweat. Um, <laughs> basically, we've got people who are going to be describing God's incredible transforming power in their lives through baptisms toward the end of the service today. So it's a special day for us for a lot of reasons. But right now, we're in Genesis chapter 18. If you're new to the church, uh, like Pastor Scott said, welcome. Great to have you with us. We have, for the last several months, been opening up this ancient text and discovering how it relates to modern times. Incredibly relevant. We've been examining specifically the life of this man, Abraham. Really unique individual, starts off very ordinary, like the rest of us, you know, very ordinary. God approaches him and engages him in a conversation. Essentially, he says, you're going to be my guy. We're going to have this really unique relationship, the two of us. And I'm going to make some promises to you. Along the way, you're going to find out what kind of God I am. I'm not just a promise maker, I'm a promise keeper. Specifically, God says, I'm going to give you land, which was a big deal. Because back in the day, land meant security. Then he said, I'm going to make your name great. Well, we've already seen that happen to this day. We've mentioned it several times. The name of Abraham is held in the highest regard amongst the world's three largest religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Then he said, those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. In other words, God says, I've got your back. Then he goes on to say, you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, which is like the ultimate blessing, to have a tribe. Then he lays down one more promise, and he says, you're actually going to have a descendant that is going to be a blessing to every family on the earth. This turns out to be Jesus. This is why Matthew, a New Testament writer, when he begins describing who Jesus is, immediately he says, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. That is to say, Jesus is the fulfillment of that specific prophecy, uh, prophecy promise that God made to Abraham that one would come forth and be a blessing to everyone. That's Jesus. So none of this really takes place, though, without a start. And so God says, Abraham, you will have a son. But as we talked about last week, oh, this is so hard. Patience. Abraham is 75 when he gets this promise. About a decade goes by and he doesn't have a child. And it seems impossible, humanly speaking, because his wife is way beyond childbearing years. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands and they're going to help God accomplish his promises, which is a never, never a good idea. God doesn't need our help in fulfilling his promises. But that's what they do. Sarah has a servant named Hagar, she says, why doesn't she become a surrogate? We can have a child through her. That's exactly what happens. Ishmael is born. 13 years go by, and Abraham and Sarah are thinking, this is great. God made a promise. We had to help him fulfill that promise, but we have a son. But God actually had different plans. Number of years goes by, and then Abraham is just kind of minding his own business. Just a very normal day. And then he gets the shock of his life, and his world is turned upside down in the best possible way. Here's what happens, chapter 18, verse 1. 
and the Lord appeared to Abraham. We know that this is God because the word Lord is Yahweh, which is the covenant name for God. We know what Abraham doesn't just yet, but God appears to him by the oaks of Mamre as Abraham sits at the door of his tent because it's really hot outside. It's in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there's three men standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth, and he said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Stop. Stay a while. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread so that you may refresh yourselves. And, and after that, you may, you may go on since you have come to, you, to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of our best flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while these three men ate. So I want you to put yourself in this story because the details are important, right? We understand this. We live in the desert. It's the hottest part of the day. And what do we do in the valley when it's the hottest part of the day. We seek shade, comfort, and cool. Nothing new. So here's what happens with Abraham. Hottest part of the day, the laborers are, are in their tents, right? Everybody's relaxing, and Abraham just decides to, oh, yeah. It's what we do in the Middle East in the afternoon. Too hot to do anything else. We'll just wait till the sun goes down and gets a little bit cooler and then we'll do our thing. And the text says that he sees three men standing there. Not too far off in the distance, but he looks. Now, there's something about these guys that strikes him as being different, majestic, because he runs toward them, and he gets to them, and what does he do? He bows down. This is a posture of humility. Don't forget who Abraham is at this point in time. He's just put the smack down with 300 of his elite soldiers on a coalition of kings. No problem. He's beyond wealthy for his time. He's a man of great influence, held in high regard, very well respected. But he runs to meet these men and he bows down in humility. There's something about these guys that's different. Now, I don't know if he recognizes immediately who they are. In a moment, he's going to find out exactly who they are. But he says, hey, uh, why don't you stay with me? It's hot outside. Here, uh, 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 take shade under the tree and let me get some water so you can wash your feet. And then you've got to be hungry, so let me get some pita going for you, you know, and runs back to his tent and tells his wife, 
get three seahs of fine flour. Now, a seah is a unit of measurement, roughly about eight liters. This is 24 liters of their best flour. This is way more bread than these three men can eat. What's happening here? This is some old school hospitality. You never want the food to run out. You want an overabundance of food because what that communicates is, you're welcome. We expect you. We want to take care of you. By the way, this is why we do what we do here at Illuminate. This is why we offer the donuts and the snacks and the drinks. Hospitality is, hospitality is an unspoken conversation. When somebody enters, it communicates, we were expecting you. Not only were we expecting you, we're ready for you. And we want you to experience the warmth of this place. We're really glad that you are here. That's why we do what we do. So back in the day, it was like this and so much more. Uh, this is what Abraham understands, and he's going overboard to provide for them. Now, we know that these two, or that these three individuals, one is God and the other two are angels. This is what theologians refer to as a theophany. In some way, shape, or form, God shows up in a human presence. Oh, by the way, that's, that's a, a little bit of a nod to Jesus because when John, one of Jesus' closest friends, writes about the life of Jesus, he begins by saying, Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory, the kind of glory that only comes from deity, like comes from God the Father. God took on flesh and we were with him. That's the life of Jesus. And so you see God in some way taking on a human form. And now, believe it or not, he's actually dining with, uh, with Abraham. Makes me think of what's written in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to people that you don't know. And here's why. Some have actually entertained angels and they weren't even aware of it. I think in part this was the case with Abraham. So it's a very, very special privilege to be able to dine with God in this way. When I was in elementary school, we had this, uh, this special little program, and it was meant to reinforce, <laughs> reinforce good behavior on the part of kids. And so once a week, one student from the elementary school would be chosen student of the week. And it was based on that kid's behavior, right? Like if you had really good behavior, then you would be the student of the week. Well, I actually won this award once. <laughs> one time, I won. And the prize was that you got to sit at the table with the principal in the cafeteria. <sighs> this is a big deal, man. In my little eight-year-old mind, I'm like, Phew. I'm going to be the next principal, you know? <laughs> I'm sitting with the principal. He's the man. Like, even the teachers bow down to the principal, and now I'm sitting at the principal's table. This is awesome. See, a few years later, like in junior high, they beat you up for stuff like that. But when you're young, you're like, yeah, this is it, man. I'm the little man, you know? Hanging with the principal. It felt like an honor to be in the presence of greatness. Well, so much more for... Abraham, back in the day, to welcome someone and to dine with them was essentially to say, we're friends. Hey, we're going to be friends. More than that, you have my protection. More than that, hey, what's mine is yours. Let me take the best of what I have and lavishly 
lavishly supply you with it. That's hospitality. This is, this is really, really cool, and it all happens. It's initiated around this food. So a couple thousand years later, Jesus comes on the scene, and he actually uses himself as a food metaphor. And what this leads to are some of the most crazy things that Jesus has ever spoken, some of the most difficult statements to interpret, some of the hardest to digest, if you will, when he uses these food metaphors of himself. So let me explain what's happening. Jesus' popularity is beginning to rise. He's this phenomenal teacher. Nobody speaks like him. Even the religious leaders don't carry this kind of authority, and people are drawn to him. And then what Jesus does next is he starts feeding them free food. Some of you might be familiar with the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So today we might say, well, I'm living from paycheck to paycheck. Well, back in the day, if you said that, you would be considered uber wealthy because most people were living literally from meal to meal to meal. And so when you show up to hear this rabbi speak and he starts miraculously feeding everybody, you're like, oh, I'm coming back. I'll see you tomorrow at lunchtime. I'm coming back. So the multitudes are gathering around him. Now, Jesus senses that they are there, perhaps for the wrong reasons. So he turns the subject and he says, you know, let's talk about spiritual food. Let's talk about spiritual food. Let's talk about something that transcends the physical. So in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. So there's this spiritual element that Jesus brings onto the scene using this metaphor of food and applying it to himself. I'm the bread of life. And then a few verses later, Jesus absolutely drops anchor. And the stuff that comes out of his mouth causes a lot of people to kind of scratch their heads and go, see ya. But Jesus cares enough to confront. Jesus did, listen, Jesus could care less about your popularity contest. What he cares about is your soul. That's why he's starting to speak in these spiritual terms, saying you're all here for the free food, but I'm going to tell you, I've got something that transcends your physical need. I'm going to meet your greatest need spiritually. John chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, and drink his blood, then you have no life in you. Wait, what? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. See, there's a bread that you can eat that gives you physical life, but I'm going to flip that on its head and get you to think about things you haven't thought about. Let's talk about your spiritual. Let's talk about your eternity. Have you thought about feeding that? And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Of course, Jesus is not speaking literally. Jesus is not promoting cannibalism. But what he's saying is, if you obey me, it's like you and I are sitting at the same table and we're dining together. And you're taking what is bread that will feed your soul. Jesus would often speak in these, in these terms. 
referring to himself. Uh, there's, in the book of Revelation, there's the story where, where Jesus approaches this church and he's like, Hey, I'm standing outside the door and I'm knocking on it. And if you hear my voice and recognize my voice and let me in, then what are we gonna do together? We're gonna eat. That, that's that's a, a spiritual fellowship. It's called like a spiritual kind of a dining experience with Jesus. Jesus is taken out into the wilderness where he hasn't eaten for 40 days. And Satan comes in his moment of weakness and he says, if you are the son of God. Satan is the ultimate deconstructionist. In a few weeks, I'm gonna bring a message on deconstructionism. But Satan is the ultimate deconstructionist. He's taking the words of God and tearing them apart. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Prove yourself to me. Jesus responds so beautifully. Well, here's the deal. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So there's this, there's this crazy language about Jesus metaphorically being the spiritual food. So here's, here's the situation. In, I don't want you to answer out loud or even raise your hands unless you want to be brutally honest in front of everybody. How's your spiritual life? How many of you would say right now it's just, it's, how can we put this mildly? Anemic? Consider your diet. See what I'm saying? Consider your diet. What are you feeding yourself spiritually? Are you dining at the table with Jesus? Are you taking his life? That's what Jesus is talking about, my flesh, my blood. Take my life up into yours. Digest my words, my actions, my attitudes, my beliefs, my behaviors. Take all of that up into your life. And you know what it will do to you? What it does is it, it begins to like scrub your soul of all the stuff that's like contaminating it and you start to feel clean and pure. And then what happens is you begin to live the kind of life you have always wanted. That's why in John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came to give them life. What do you mean? Aren't we all living? No, not really. Got a lot of people living, but not existing. I came to give them life. And then he says this, life abundantly. We might say, are you living your best life? You can't live your best life apart from a dynamic relationship where Jesus is literally feeding you. So this is, uh, this is a really interesting interaction here. There's so much more than meets the eye. It's a nod to what, who Jesus is. Now, God has a very special purpose for this uh, visit. And by the way, it's not necessarily for our man Abraham. Verse nine, so they said to him, so where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And then the Lord said, well, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And uh, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was uh, listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. We talked about this a bit last week. That is an understatement. Abraham is 100. That dude is crushed, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that guy is old, 100 years old. 
Sarah is 90. She hears that she's gonna have a baby. Right, she's looking in the mirror. text says she begins to laugh to herself. Not out loud, but to herself. Just contemplating her body, like, really a baby? Like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna feed this kid? <laughs> no way. Too difficult. Too, too impossible. See, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so women give birth. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, are we gonna have the pleasure of having kids? She laughed to herself. I'm worn out. We're old. There ain't no way we're gonna have kids. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Well, she didn't laugh out loud, she laughed to herself. Ooh, Abraham's like. Why did Sarah laugh? How did you know that she laughed? Wait a minute, who are you? And why did she say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What a great question. If you believe the opening line of the Bible, then it's a very small thing for God to help two old people have a child. If you believe the opening line of the Bible, pretty much everything else in the Bible falls into place. What is the opening line of the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mic drop, right? God says, I want to introduce myself to you. How can I do that? Let's do this. Look around you. Do you see it all? Order, design, complexity. I did it. Oh, and I did it ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, because that's what I, that's what I do. So this is a very small thing, and it's a great question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will, come, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. So this, this visit isn't really necessarily just for Abraham. It's really also for Sarah, because she's going to have a major part in God's promise being fulfilled that Abraham would be a blessing to the entire world. Uh, now, I, I, I think, again, picture this scene. You know, she's, she's, she's back there. She's making, the, she, right, she's making the pita or whatever, right? She's already got the yogurt out there. The, the calf's been served. Yeah, right. Like that's going to happen. So we talked about this uh, a little bit last week. She laughs. The Hebrew word for laughter is yasach. Yitzach, pronounced in English, Isaac. So let me give you Jason's loose, very loose, for the sake of my uh, seminary professors, very loose paraphrase. Sarah hears that she will have a child, and she yitzach, she Isaacs, she laughs. 
God hears her laughing to herself. And God says, why did Sarah, Isaac, why did she yitzhak? Why did she laugh? Sarah says, I didn't, Isaac. I did not, Isaac. I'm telling you, I did not, Isaac. I did not laugh. And God says, no, but you did, Isaac. You did it, Zach. Now, what's really cool about this story, you have to love the beauty of the scriptures. It's quite a story. In the previous chapter, God tells Abraham to name the boy Yitzhak, Isaac. This is a teachable moment for Sarah because every time she calls that boy's name, she's gonna be reminded of her response in thinking that God can't do something. Laughter, laughter, be home before dark. Laughter, come help prepare dinner. Laughter, pick up your clothes. Every time she mentions that boy's name, she's being reminded, I probably shouldn't laugh when God says he's going to do something because the proof of it is under my own roof. It's quite beautiful. There's so much more here than meets the eye. This meal is over, the birth announcement has been made, Abraham escorts his guests outside, he waves goodbye, and then these individuals turn their attention to uh, what, what have become very infamous cities. Verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Should I tell him what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, which we on this side have already seen that happen, right? They're uh, both the Israelite nation, the Arab nations, they all trace their lineage back to Abraham. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's why Matthew starts his account of the life of Jesus by saying Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, come to die on the cross for everybody. For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so very grave, I'm gonna go down there and check it out. I'm gonna go see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I'm gonna know. So these cities, particularly Sodom, has become famous. The word sodomy, we now use to describe any kind of sex, illicit sex, outside of what the Bible prescribes. What's really interesting though is that the prophet Ezekiel, when he condemns or speaks out against the city of Sodom, he doesn't mention anything about their sexuality. Here's what he condemns them for. He says they were proud, they were lazy, they were gluttonous, and they didn't care about the poor or the needy. From Ezekiel's standpoint, he doesn't, he doesn't even bring up the sexual stuff. He just talks about how they're proud, lazy, gluttonous, and they don't care about people. What's also interesting is that there is an outcry. The city is so messed up that literally it's like this outcry, God hears it. And he's like, okay, I've got, you've got my attention now violence, uh, a total disregard for um, human life, total depravity, 
it's just the city is totally jacked up. There's pain everywhere. Now, in some sense, of course, there are cities across America and across the world that display the spirit of Sodom to this day. Nevertheless, God says, I'm going to go see it for myself. But this is all God drawing Abraham in because they're about to engage in a conversation because God is going to reveal something about himself to Abraham, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near, and he says, question, God. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now, this is a great question because remember, he's still getting to know God. The relationship is growing. We're going to see some incredible faith on his part in a few chapters, faith unlike anything we've ever seen before. But he's, 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 this is good of God. He, want, he wants to give Abraham what he needs. And so Abraham's like, ah, are you really just? Because I've got some questions for you with regard to your actions and what you're about to do to Sodom. He says, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five, suppose, suppose that there, oh, excuse me, he says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? If only 50 people are there, you're gonna wipe out everybody? What about the 50 that are there that are righteous? Far, far be it from you to, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare is the wicked. That doesn't seem fair. Far, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Certainly you wouldn't do that. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in this city, you got it, deal. I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I'm but dust and ashes. I'm nothing. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? What if there's just 45 people, 45 righteous? Again, he spoke to him and said, so well, suppose, not, not 40, let's just go, suppose 40. Let's just go 40. 40 righteous people there. God says, for the sake of 40, I won't destroy it. Then he said, oh, okay, hey, let the, God, don't be angry. I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak again. Suppose 30. What about 30? Do I hear 30? What if there are 30 righteous people there, right? He's like having this, like, like he's an auctioneer, right, with God. 50, 45, 40, 30, 30, do I 30? <laughs> I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham, just one more time. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy you. Okay, God, don't be angry, but I don't mean to try your patience, but what if there's just 10? 10 in the entire city. Would you spare the city for these 10 people? Because it sure doesn't seem like a just God would wipe out the good with the bad. That's his theological, see, this is a theological issue for him. What he's asking is, what kind of God are you? This is a great question, by the way. This is super legit. This is what he's thinking this through. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So this is pretty cool. Abraham's got some uh, moral compassion. He seems very sensitive here. But, but he, I think he really wants to know who God is. So he intercedes on behalf of the city. And he's convinced that God is good and that God cannot do wrong. But here's where Abraham was wrong. He was wrong to assume that righteous people don't suffer because they do suffer all the time. In fact, the psalmist gets super raw and he says, God, explain this to me. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Well, that's because we live in a fallen world. And one day, God will right all of the wrongs. One day, the patience of God will come to an end, 
Jesus returns and he will right all the wrongs. But until then, the righteous actually do suffer. More to the point, God says, I've actually got skin in this game. I just didn't create the game, but I'm invested in it. Because I'm gonna send my son into the world and he's the most innocent person who's ever lived. And he will suffer horrible torture. The most righteous person who's ever lived. And they are gonna nail him to a cross. Actually, the righteous do suffer. Abraham attempts to be the mediator on behalf of the people, which is a foreshadowing of Jesus. And essentially what, what Abraham is saying is, can't the goodness of those people save themselves? Ooh, think about that. That's the same question people ask today when they say, hey, in the end, my good will outweigh my bad, and I'm there. Well, listen to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah because essentially what God is saying is no one is good enough. Abraham, appreciate you you're trying to play this role of mediator, but at the end of the day, nobody is good enough to save themselves because you have to be perfect, and nobody's perfect. So really, in that sense, nobody in this city is righteous enough. That's a problem for all of you. But God has the answer because he provides Jesus, whom the scriptures say is God's righteousness on our behalf. Isn't it cool? I told you, I told you, I told you. Every chapter in Genesis points forward to Jesus, including this one. So we've been saying that Jesus is in the business of, of transforming lives. And I think it really comes down to this question, and I'm going to put it to you. Do you believe that all things are possible with God? No, I'm asking you. Do you really believe that God can do anything? Okay, you should, and here's why. Because we have already seen and experienced the promises of God come true. Do you understand that? That's so important for you to understand. This is the beautiful thing about being a Christian. You've heard me say many times. It takes a very small amount of faith for me to be a Christian, especially compared to all the other worldviews and religions that are out there. Ours is not a blind faith. God has given us so many anchors. Ours is a faith that is actually well-reasoned. In fact, the Bible says that. Come, let us reason together. Yeah, engage your mind. Isn't that what you see Abraham doing? Hey, God, I got questions, real theological ones. Are you who, who I think you are? Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. I'm even better than you think. Nobody's righteous, and I'm going to send my son to be righteous for everybody who believes in him. We're good. That's how good I am. I'm going to transcend your sense of earthly justice. See, that's the problem. We try to put ourselves in the seat of the judge. We make lousy judges simply because we are not omniscient. We're not omniscient, we don't know everything. Neither are we all good. So what do you believe about God? Do you believe that he can do anything? This is what's so cool about hearing from our sister and her story. You're about to hear from some people now. Go back and listen to the testimonies from this first service, please do that. You don't have to listen to the sermon, although that would be nice. <laughs> Go back and listen to the testimonies from the first service and, and you know, grab, get ready to just cry. You know why that is? Because it's the power of God on display. So Father, we're just so grateful that we get to be a part of this. It's just amazing. I thank you for this church family and for this community and what a blessing it is to me and my family, my life specifically. Lord, now a special blessing over these, these amazing people that are going to give witness to who you are and the power of transformation. Uh, they're very bold, they're brave. Pray a special blessing upon them. As always, everything we do, everything we say, under your hand of blessing, and all to make Jesus famous and to make him known. And God's people said, amen.